The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. All right, book of Jude. So if you're going to open your Bible, start at the back and go back a book. Um, Second to last book in the Bible. It is a short book. We're going to cram through the whole thing as fast as possible. Um, But we are going to discuss most of it um, quickly, but most of it. Uh, We'll just open with a word of prayer since... um, uh, Jacob was kindly prayed for to preach. I'll pray for myself. I'm just joking. But dear Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. We thank you so much for your word and what it means to us. We thank you so much for the truth that you've instilled in our hearts through your spirit. Lord, through the application of your holy word to our lives, we pray that you'd change us this morning. Lord, that the distractions that are imminent and they're around us would be removed. Lord, the thoughts that we have brought into here this morning would be laid aside so that we can just focus on what you have to say to us. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I'm going to start just by saying I am really grateful for um, the music this morning. There were several times that I was able to just be reminded of the passage that we're going to step into um, because of the songs that Bill picked out. And um, there's a lot of work that goes into the, the music here at church. And I'm very grateful for the leadership that he provides on that and what everybody does up here. Um, it was a blessing to me already. You, you have the dis the, the uh, disadvantage of not having read the book yet this morning, but it was a blessing for me to be reminded as we were singing this morning of some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, this is not a Christmas sermon. Christmas is over, so get over it. Um, I love Christmas, but when Christmas is done, it's done, and it doesn't start before it begins. That's generally the rule in our house. It's a, it's a battle Alex and I have on a regular basis, um, starting in June usually. Uh, but this is also not really um, a New Year's sermon either. I, I think it applies uh, I think what we're going to be called to from the book of Jude is more of a life change than something we're going to commit to for the next year. Um, it, is, it is looking back even more than it speaks forward at times, a very metaphorical, allegorical, and apocalyptic language used in the book, um, kind of similar to Revelation. Uh, you're going to hear some language that's not used in a lot of the Bible. Jude is not writing to anyone in particular. He doesn't address the people that he's talking to. There's no city named. There's no church named. Um, but it is very obvious that he is speaking to Jews and probably Gentiles who understood Jewish tradition. So there's going to be some of that in the book that we're going to talk about. I'm going to bounce off it briefly. We're not going to go into a huge amount of depth just because we do want to get through the whole thing. But let's just start by reading the first three verses. Uh, I'm not going to read through the whole thing right away. Um, We'll kind of take it piece by piece. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. There's a lot of information packed into these three verses about this book. Um, We find out it's written by Jude. Surprise. He claims that he is the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude's not a very well-known character in the Bible not mentioned a lot of times. He is more than likely calling on his brother because his brother is a little bit more of a well-known figure. Uh, We don't know which Jude this is. So if you read your Bible, there's a couple mentions of Jude. Jude, Judas, um, it was the same name. It's definitely not Judas Iscariot. He's long dead. Um, But this could either be Jude Thaddeus, which is the disciple of Jesus. More than likely, and tradition usually speaks to the fact that this is actually Jude the brother of Jesus and the brother of James, the bishop, not James, the son of Alphaeus, which would have been the brother of the other Jude. 
So if you've read about the disciples, just making those connections for you, more than likely, and the assumption I'm going to make is that this is Jude, Jesus's brother, which this is a very humble first sentence. He is not claiming brotherhood to Jesus to present this letter. He chooses to recognize the fact that he is related to the kind of main pastor at the time, um, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ, not my brother, not my family member. He says, I deserve to be only his servant. And then he turns around and he applies some things to us, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He doesn't call on a certain church, he doesn't call on a certain city, but he calls on a very specific people in this group. Maybe wasn't, we weren't obviously not in his mind when he wrote the book, but this is very much written to us. We are the called, we are God's children, we are his family, we're the people he chose We are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude, what Jude is saying here is while he considers himself to only be called a servant, he is going to look at the church, he is going to look at God's people and apply the familial relationships. He's going to give to us what belong only to the family of God. So while he is not willing to call Jesus' brother to raise himself up, he is willing to encourage us with the fact that we are God's family. We're God's people. We are chosen by God. We're beloved or sanctified, is another translation, in God the Father. We're being made into his likeness. We're his children. And we're kept for Christ. Matthew Henry says it this way, where he begins, he will perfect. Though we are fickle, he is constant. We are kept for Christ. We're called, we're changed, we're kept And he continues, verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Pretty common greeting if you you read the Old Testament, or sorry, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Um, Paul usually finishes with grace and peace. Jude stepping in, um, and it's fairly common among the other writers to say, these are yours. Again, family ties, family blessings. You are of God then you are going to be multiplied through mercy, the direct result of grace. Peace is going to follow mercy naturally, and love, these are God's mercy, God's peace, God's love, and we are called to multiply it. We are called to show those things to each other. And since the gospel is true, this is how we are invited to being every day. With the multiplication of mercy, peace, and love, this is what is raining down on us on every moment of every day. By God's grace, this is what is most deeply true of us. And in a book that spends most of its time dealing with people who try to pervert the gospel and present it as something it's not, um, to use the gospel as an excuse for sexual immorality, um, for chasing money, for all sorts of sins. These three verses, we just need to take the time and recognize what Jude is saying to us. He is saying that every moment of every day, your your existence is built on the mercy, peace, and love of God. And he wants us to keep this in mind as we continue through what is a fairly angry-sounding book. Uh, I, I read through John Calvin's commentary on the book of Jude, and he uses... Some language like idiot, losers, sluggish, morons. Um, 
for some of the people he's going to be talking about. And it just like kind of, when you're reading the older language, it doesn't kind of stand out in the way that maybe the 1500s, they were a little bit more loose-lipped in saying. But it's a fairly kind of angry book. But Jude starts with this greeting that reminds us throughout this book, we are kept in God's love. We are kept in his mercy. We are kept in his peace. And lastly, before we jump into our points and, and the, 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 the kind of main aim of this sermon, Jude does say this is not what he wanted to write about. He says, this isn't the letter I had planned on writing. I had planned on writing a systematic on common salvation, on what salvation means to all of us as a group, as God's family, what does salvation accomplish, how was it accomplished, how was it worked out, what is it doing? I think that would have been a really interesting book of the Bible, um, but it's not the one that the Holy Spirit had for him. He was called to action. He was called to write because of a series of issues that were pertinent to the people that he is writing to and that carry into our day. He was forced to write this letter because he had an a, uh, irresistible urge by the Spirit to pen this letter. Beloved, I was also, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints, to all the saints. And so we step into this book where he is going to give us three things. He's going to give us a cause for concern. He's going to give us a call to persevere. And he's going to bring us to a confident conclusion. It's a confusing book, so I alliterated that. Hopefully you can remember it. Cause for concern is the biggest portion of this. But he is writing to us out of a position of love, out of a position of peace, in a position where he wants us to see God's mercy through all of this. The main point, the main idea that he is presenting is that Christ's conquering truth gives us unbeatable faith for real obedience. And he's weaving, woven that throughout all 26 verses, 25 verses, that we're going to look at this morning. So start in verse 4. We're going to start with the cause for concern here. We're going to start with a cause for concern. I'll read uh, several verses, so just keep up with me. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, some of that apocalyptic language, the metaphorical language, even though it's probably very much a real point in history, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Sounds like nice people. Uh, <laughs> These are people that are invading the church. You can kind of see where Jude's urgency is coming from. You, you start this massive work on the salvation that God has provided to us, and you're forced to write a letter about these jerks. But it was important to him. And I hope you can go through that passage and realize it's carrying over today. These aren't teachers. These aren't false teachers that are gone from among us. They haven't been wiped off the face of the earth. They exist. Let's look at just the very first portions of this, uh, these verses that we just read, starting in verse 4, and, and really dig into how he's describing them. Uh, we're not going to go into a massive amount of detail, detail about this. I'm more than happy to discuss it with anyone that wants to afterwards if they, they'd like to know. Um, you know, know twice as much as you say. I, I probably can go into a little bit more detail, but we're not going to go too far. Designated for condemnation. It's one of the first things he says about them. Designated for condemnation. What I want to pull from that is simply that these individuals, these teachers who are invading the church, remember, these are people who are coming into the church. They're taking the gospel that Christ has provided. Um, he says that we're contending for the faith. We are, that was once delivered to all the saints in verse 3. That means this is an established doctrine that they're perverting. The people of God at this point in history, know God's truth. They may not have the full written word, but the letters of the apostles are circulating. Jesus' teaching is circulating. They know God's word, and these teachers are coming in, and they're twisting it. They're turning it to mean what is convenient for, them to, for, for it to mean. And it would catch churches off guard, as you, as you could expect. It would catch churches off guard. People would fall for it. Other people would get angry about it. Pastors, new pastors, most of them are at this point. Um, they're going to be kind of taken back and not know exactly how to handle this. And Jude starts, doesn't sound like it, but he starts with encouragement for the church. He says, these guys are designated for condemnation, meaning this did not catch God off guard. This is not something that he hasn't worked into his plan. This is not something that he did not know was going to happen. These, these are pre-designated people. They were never going to believe. They were never going to trust the true gospel. They were never going to come to the conclusion that Jesus was teaching on. They were never going to come to the truth that the, the disciples were offering. He says that they pervert God's grace into a license for sensuality and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They are taking the grace of God, the thing that Jesus Christ died to offer us, 
that puts sin and its, its consequences, at least eternal consequences, and its eternal hold to death. And they're twisting that and turning it into a license to sin. They're saying, because Jesus died, it's okay that I did this or that I do this. It's, and really, they're teaching it. So it's okay that you do this or that you did this. And they're turning the gospel on its head. The gospel to them is no longer something that perfects you, that changes you. I mean, the very second verse, we're beloved, we're, we're sanctified by God, we're changed into his image. It's no longer something that does that. Instead, it's just this card you carry around saying, I'm good, I'm clear, we're all set. And hopefully he is, he's getting across very early on why the, the tone of this letter might be the way that it is. <laughs> They twist the free forgiveness of sin into an excuse to live however they want. And they try to bring other people into that with them. R.C. Sproul said it this way, sin is cosmic treason. It's a treason against the perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one whom we owe everything to the one who has given us life itself. And they take it and they twist it to be something completely opposite from what Jesus Christ intended it to be. Verse 5 is a little um, bit of a push here. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What he's saying is, the people that these teachers are speaking to had once been assured of the salvation and the freedom offered through Christ— and these teachers have somehow successfully swayed their confidence in that. And he says, furthermore, I want to remind you that these people in the past, the same Christ who is gracious and loving, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, who called that people to himself, afterward destroyed the ones that did not believe. That means the same gracious, loving God is also holy and just and has a standard by which he judges. It is not the case that he just willy-nilly throws his love around and we get to do whatever we want to with it. But instead, he's reminding them that, yes, all of those things are 100% true about me, but you cannot just take this and mean it, or take it to mean something completely different than what I've thrown out to you. They understood the teaching of Christ. They understood that he died to change them, to do things for them that they could have never accomplished for themselves, to bring them to truths that they could have never realized, to live a way that they could have never lived. And then they have people sneaking in. You have people sneaking in and saying that, well, it actually means kind of do whatever you want. That's not what Christ intended. That's not what he said. That's not what these verses or the, 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 the disciples that he sent out, the apostles that are writing, that's not what they're saying. And frankly, these are not people who believe the gospel. Jude offers a reminder, and that reminder is basically that we are not to glory carelessly in God's grace, but to remember that he is a holy God whom we should also fear, and he has a law that we should obey, in the words of Calvin, the contempt of God's grace will not go unpunished. It's a little bit of a dark letter. We're not going to stay here, I promise. 
<laughs> it, gets a little, it gets a little brighter. But he does offer three examples to back this up. And it's important that we kind of look at these. Verse 5, he freed the Israelites, and some of the freed Israelites became punished Israelites. These people saw miracles. They had uh, bread and, and quail provided daily. They saw God work in ways that were astounding. But our advantages today are far greater than the ones that they had. The advantages of, of having the gospel uncovered, the mystery of the gospel unpacked for us as the New Testament teaches, the, the, the fact that it's so far widespread and not kept to the, that certain people, their error is our, warning, is our warning. Their error is our warning. They perverted the grace of God. Then there's the angels in verse 6. Angels risen higher, rose, uh, raised to a place higher than we are, but they fell in rebellion. They had a position of inhabitancy with God, but the rebellion would find them falling. Those who would not be servants to their maker would be captives to his judgment as they passed on God's grace. You have the children of Israel who pervert God's grace. You have the, children, the angels who saw God's grace. They had full access to the throne. They stood in front of him. They dwelled with him, and they passed on it to chase their own desires. Then we have the men of Sodom. Having been warned, but not listening. A, a city wholly turned over to their own desires, to their own sins. God sends them in his grace messengers to call them out of that. And they tempted and toyed with those messengers to use them for their own gratification while they were being warned of the impending punishment of their behavior. They were completely destroyed as they played with God's grace. This is the God that these false teachers are going up against. And they teach in such a way to build a false God into our heads that is completely devoid of any kind of holiness. They're counterfeits. They're fakes. I don't think we've experienced this in this church at all. So deep breath. This is not something we go through here. Jacob, no, Jacob's sweating over here a little bit. Not talking about in the walls of this church, but in a world where teaching can come from every direction at any time, the internet, um, for all of its downsides, has been a massive tool to spread the gospel. And sometimes things get packaged into that that are not the gospel. We, we're not just concerned, unfortunately, especially as a pastor, Jacob can't just be concerned with what you're hearing in the four walls of this building or in our community groups. There's a concern that we could get called away by some crazy thing that some money collector said from some stadium somewhere. Counterfeits. They're, the, the, the whole entire assessment, starting with Jesus' teaching, is, is packed with images of birds invading trees and mustard bushes growing into the size of a tree that shouldn't because there's, there's things in there that don't necessarily get... The church is, a, is something that the gates of hell cannot push up against, but they're going to try. There's going to be an invasion. Jude is taking us... 
He is taking us from the knowledge that we have, the teaching that we've been provided with, and he's dropping us in the trenches, and he's kind of saying, good luck. Um, but he's letting us know what we're up against. And I, I hope, if nothing else, this passage makes you grateful for the church that you have, that we are a place that believes the Bible, believes the gospel. We don't just believe the gospel. We try to apply it to every facet of our life, being gospel-centered. We want to take that and we want to show that gospel to other people. And we want to show it in all of its truth. But there's going to be counterfeits. Um, kind of a big classic rock fan. I just don't know why or how I fell into it because my parents aren't really huge music people, but love classic rock. Uh, kind of a fan of Greta Van Fleet. Hopefully some of you are familiar with who that is. They're pretty good, fairly new bands, but they're really just a counterfeit of Led Zeppelin, if we're being honest. They just pretend to be something that they're not, something that's way better. I'm 30 now, so I get to play the old person, play, play on the side of the old people. Greta Van Fleet will never be as good as Led Zeppelin, period. But they sound like them, they act like them, they play like them. By the way, I'm not saying I like them as the standard for holiness, since that's what the, since that's what the, the sermon is about today. I just happen to like the way they sound when they play instruments. But they're not as much as a counterfeit as, say, Nickelback, who pretends to be a rock band in general. There's degrees of these things. But we are going to come into contact with counterfeits. And Jude, in a fairly harsh way, with fairly trick tricky language, is just saying you need to be aware. The sermon was not written for anyone in this building right now. But we have to be warned. We have to be aware. It is the gospel. It is God's grace that warns us of these falsehoods. Quickly, to finish this first point, he does, gives us, he does give us um, uh, a few other things here. Uh, first of all, let's just touch on what he said about Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We're not going to go into a lot of detail. If you're familiar with some of the Old Testament, so Cain kills his brother, starts a city that is built on violence and sexual immorality, um, Balaam was called to uh, curse the children of Israel. God made his donkey talk to him, and then he blessed the children of Israel, but then he led the children of Israel um, into sexual immorality and idolatry. And then Korah wanted to increase his position in Moses' camp, rose up against Moses. The whole entire earth opened up and swallowed him and every one of his followers. That's the, the 22nd version of these three stories. <laughs> But in each of these stories, all three of these were not satisfied with the position that they held, and they greedily sought after a higher position. And he's comparing these teachers, he's comparing these actions to using the gospel for your own gain. And that is the intention of these teachers. We're not just saying that everyone that we disagree with is a heretic. We're not just saying that everyone that we disagree with is a false teacher. We're not saying that everyone who makes a mistake in the pulpit is wrong because I'd be in that group. What we are saying is that there are people who very obviously use the gospel for their own personal gain. And that is who Jude is talking about. We live in a day, and again, in an age where the, the internet provides some of these things to us. We hear stories of pastors buying their family members, $200,000 Lamborghinis. We, we, we hear about um, sexual infidelity in churches on a regular basis now. We hear about uh, misappropriation of funds. You have like Dateline and 60 Minutes that do those things all the time. 
church after church after church after church falling into these things. And then you go to your crazy family member's house and they have their book on their table. That's when you steal the book, put it in your purse or bag and just walk out of the building. You're doing them good. I'm just joking. Don't do that. Where is the gospel in all of this, though? Before we move on to the second, po- the second point, let's just find the gospel in the first point very quickly here. Look at verse 5. It's a reminder. Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, this holy Jesus who issues justice is the same Jesus who saves his people from their own destruction. Jude is showing us the photo negative of the gospel. He's giving us a dark and vivid picture of those who distort the gospel, the grace of the gospel, to accommodate their own sin. It shows us that false teaching smuggles death into the church, but the gospel of God brings life. And he hammers away at the truth that Christ's conquering truth gives us unbeatable faith for real obedience. These people exist. We have to be aware of them. We have to be able to contend. And so he gives us a call to persevere. Very quickly, verse 17 through 23. But you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. We have a call to persevere. The existence and actions of these teachers have been predicted, and we have been forewarned. The accomplishment of this prophecy is a confirmation of our faith, though. Don't let it scare you. Don't let the idea that these people exist, that there, is going to, there are going to be people who take something as great as the gospel and try to turn it into something that it's not. It is a confirmation of our faith, not something that should shake and unsettle it. If you are reading the Bible, if you are accepting its truth, if you are reading it for what it says, and you are seeing people who take it and twist it, it is a confirmation of your faith. That's how Jude means it. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, and he gives us very clear instruction here. We do not respond by bashing these people in the face for Jesus. We don't seek them out just looking for people to disagree with or looking for arguments. We please, please do not just post their names on your Facebook page all the time. Our warfare is spiritual, not physical. And Jude points out some very key ways in which we wage this war. It is great to be a part of a battle in which a lot of the struggle um, and a lot of the fight can be done internally. (laughs) That most often when I have a fight to do, it's with myself. And Jesus is fighting with me, on my side and against me sometimes. That I am not responsible to call out every single false teacher on earth and beat them in the face with my Bible. 
I am not responsible to hunt them down and tar and feather them. I am responsible to respond in the way that Jude outlines, and it's a lot easier, in my opinion, by the power of the Spirit to respond this way. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. He's using an analogy of a building. This is the foundation. What he is literally saying is, just know your Bible. If you are going to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered, you should probably know and remember what was delivered to you. Know your Bible. Know your doctrine. Know why you believe what you believe. And what opportunities we have for this. I mean, we spent five minutes at the beginning of the sermon talking about that. We are a church that loves to follow Jesus. We love to do that together. We love to learn about him. We love to read about him. We love to talk about him. We love to study him. We love to share him. We love to bless others with him. I think that if you're wondering, how do I do this? We can start with coming on Sunday. Step one, done. Finding a missional community group. Hopefully step two is accomplished. If it's not, you should get that done. Uh, I think Adam, uh, with Jacob's blessing, is going to present us a great opportunity to build up our faith, to earnestly contend by building ourselves up in the most holy faith. If you, if you have the time on a Sunday morning to attend his Sunday school class, absolutely should be there. It is built around the idea of, of knowing the basic ideas, hopefully basic ideas, probably not basic ideas. I shouldn't say they're basic because then you'll skip. Um, of what, what scripture is trying to teach us. I'm going to go. After the sermon, you probably think I need to go. But there are ideas, there, there, there are opportunities through King's Cross Church to, to accomplish step one. And I'll just say that the, the, one of the biggest ways is just the organic friendships that you have through people in the church, through people in churches around us. Um, the, some of the best lessons I learn outside of Jacob's preaching <laughs> are through the conversations that I, I get to have in missional community group, outside of missional community group, meeting for dinner over the weeks, weeknights. But he says, build yourself up in the most holy faith. And he uses that word holy, calling in complete contrast what these counterfeits are saying about the gospel. Timothy says that we are to remember the things we've learned and that we've received, and we're to commit those to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And I'm grateful for a church that invests in that and puts time and effort into that, that we are not just wanting to be taught, but we're wanting to teach, we're wanting to share, we're wanting to commune, we're wanting to fellowship over the truth of God's word. Then he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Welcome the Spirit into your prayers. Because you cannot properly pray without him. Romans teaches us that he's uttering groanings that we couldn't even fathom. This is harmony with the Spirit. It's a consistency in prayer. Prayer, prayer when we are praying when we are prodded and prompted to. Not just as a checklist on, on our day-to-day. -day. Not just five minutes we squeeze out in the morning to say that we did it. Although, if you're doing that, please keep doing it. But this is, this is being led, this is being tuned to the Spirit for when to pray, what to pray, how to pray. Praying by leading, by his leading rather than your own agenda. And he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God is the main cause for 20 and 21. And we do that, and it is supported by building, praying, and waiting. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? By building, praying, and waiting. We're building our knowledge, building our understanding, building our affection on Christ by knowing what he's saying to us, by welcoming the Spirit into our prayer, and by anxiously and hopefully awaiting the return of Christ. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We keep ourselves in God's love by growing in the knowledge of God, growing in persistent prayer, and anticipating his return. And lastly here, he calls us to persevere by calling us to not only act, but to remember. He said, this isn't just something I'm asking you to do out of the blue. This is something that I've consistently asked for, I've consistently accomplished. Jude is reminding us that Christ's saving work of redemption is not some one-off, disjointed event. Christ's death on the cross to accomplish your salvation was not just this unconnected, um, unmeaningful event where he just kind of decided one day to pop in and save everybody. Instead, his work is in redeeming his people It is the climax of all of the works of God on behalf of his people, past, present, and future. The work that Christ accomplished on the cross fits into history perfectly. This is not a one-off event. Jude twice calls us to remember. He wants to remind us in verse 5, although we once fully knew it, that Jesus did save his people. And he wants us to remember that all the troubles, all the trials, all the battles that we're going to get into are predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has warned and planned for these things to happen. We accomplish all of this by remembering that ultimately it is Christ's conquering truth that gives us unbeatable faith for his real obedience. How do we fight against false teaching? by realizing that Christ has been victorious for us, that he's accomplished these things. His plan is is age-old. And it brings us, and we rest in, the fact that we are not alone by coming to a confident conclusion. Verses 24 to 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And take a deep breath and sigh of relief if you thought those last few verses that we read sounded like really hard steps to take. It's a confident conclusion that Jude is reminding us that Christ's saving work of redemption, again, is not disjointed from the whole of history that he's bringing these things to pass. He is at work, past, present, and future. And God's infinite worth in this doxology, in this song that Jude sings for us about God's grace and God's gospel at the end of this passage is intrinsically connected. God's infinite worth is connected to our great joy. 
We find joy not in life's circumstances, not in the battles that we fight up against or lack of battles that we have, but in the fact that God is infinitely worthy of our joy and infinitely provides us joy. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, um, the word there in the Greek, if you're interested, is similar to apostasy. Uh, Continual stumbling leads to a falling away. Christ keeps us from doing that. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we sin. Yes, we do things. But it is the grace of God that brings us into repentance for those sins, that brings us back into the family of the church, that gives us a church family to call us back into repentance. And a result of him keeping us from stumbling, that which he has begun, he will accomplish. What he started, he will finish. He's going to present us by his glory with great joy. Can you allow that sentence, by his glory with great joy, to be reflected against the rest of the passage? He banished the angels to gloomy darkness, but he's calling us into the light of his glory. Where they could not stand any longer, we are welcomed to stand, and we have a promise that eventually we will eternally stand in that place. And he has done that by his gospel, by his true gospel, he is carrying us to that point. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're glorifying God through the mediator Christ. And we're going to ascribe to him the things that he is deserving of. Glory, because he is worthy of great honor. Majesty, because he is greater than all. Dominion, because his sovereign reign has no boundaries. Authority, because he rules over all creation. And as scary as those first several verses sounded, they're nothing compared to that. The description of Christ, the description of God through Christ, conquers that, flattens it out. May the praiseworthiness of God, who is as gracious as he is great, be fully acknowledged in our adoration of him, in our worship of him. And can we do that? Can we praise him by remembering, as Jude asks us to remember several times, that it is Christ's conquering truth that gives us unbeatable faith for real obedience? How do we obey? By claiming Christ's work, by following the steps that he's laid out, by committing to knowing him, and by resting in what he's accomplished for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of this book. As confusing and uh, hard to read as it might be, we thank you that you have drawn the gospel out of every corner of it, that you don't leave us in the darkness of confusion, but you promise by your spirit, through the work of your son, through the calling that you've had on us, to bring us to full realization of all, of that you, all that you have provided, Lord, that one day we will stand before your throne ascribing these things to you, giving to you and pushing to you the true gospel that you have preached to us. We thank you for your work and what you've done in our hearts. We pray that you continue to do these things the rest of the service. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.